uh, as someone who speaks here pretty consistently, is probably uh, one of the more challenging messages to give on a yearly basis. And, uh, but I'm going to stay in the book of Revelation and really the text, which I, uh, we did last week, and take three to four verses from it. So Revelation chapter 5, I'd like us to pray uh, that God would give us ears to hear a, a bit of a different way of approaching Christmas this year. All right? Thank you, Veronica. That was just beautiful. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I do ask in the name of Jesus that amidst the flurry of activity going on around us, the great intensity in the streets outside and uh, shopping stores filled to brimming and with all of us with many things to do, Father, this is your, your celebration of the greatest event in human history. And so I pray, Lord, that you would center us as your people, that you have raised up as and redeemed and purchased from every nation and tri tribe and land on the globe, that, Lord, you would center us on you, that you are on the throne and what this week is all about. So I pray, Father, you would open up our eyes and just quiet us to see clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's put up a little graph here. I, we have a diagram for you this morning before we start. I'm going to blow out our candles here. If I can. All right. And I want you to ponder this as we think about what this week is all about. Uh, it's not just about the economy getting better and the stock market improving, but uh, really if you look at the book of Revelation, and we've been on it, really as it looks at history, looks at it like this, we have the creation of the universe by the word of God. And then you'll notice the squiggly lines. And that squiggly lines refers to turbulence. Think of a plane, right, and in turbulence. And that once sin into the human race, that, that, that God sovereignly in his decision, remember it says in uh, four, verse, chapter 4, verse 11, that by God's will, his pleasure, he created all things. And that God created everything in this universe and all of humanity. And, but one of his sovereign decisions in creation was to give to human beings freedom. And uh, he gave us freedom to make choices for him or against him. And that's why we have a turbulent line. Because it was his sovereign will and decision to give us freedom. And with that, uh, you know, there are lots of things that happen with sin entering the human race of turbulence. But God's not helpless, but God acted. And at a point in time, the decisive moment in history was when Jesus incarnated and came down and visited and became a baby, a human being. God came to the planet. That is the decisive intervention of human history. And uh, he becomes one of us. He takes our sinfulness. He lives a perfect life. He, he dies as our substitute on the cross. He resurrects from the dead. He disarms sin, he disarms death, he disarms the devil, he defeats him on a cross, he resurrects. But nonetheless, the turbulence continues. And that the end is not until a moment in time when it will all end. And God will bring an end to human history as we know it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. But God is completely in control, God's on the throne. And, uh, but he preserves our freedom and dignity throughout the whole process. He doesn't force anybody to respond to him and open the door and allow him in into a relationship. And in God preserving our freedom and our dignity, that's why there's always the possibility of hell and that and God doesn't force any 
Am I off again? Should I go off this mic, Louie? Okay. Back to microphone number two. We are celebrating, we are lifting up, we are exalting the most decisive event in human history. That's the incarnation. Now, in Revelation chapter 5, and I want to read beginning at verse 4, where, remember, John's weeping and the scroll is in the book of God, the creator of the universe, and he's weeping because no one's found worthy to open the scroll and look inside it. And that scroll is history and God acting through history, the story of your life and my life. And then one of the elders in verse 5 says to John, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so he said, there is someone who's able to make sense of history and who's go- who has intervened, is going to bring this to a completion where all the rights will be righted and all the wrongs will be set right. And then in verse 6 is the verse I want to focus on this morning. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and by the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, and he came, verse 7, and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he does that, Jesus' invasion, Jesus' resurrection, he takes the scroll, and then the rest of the chapter is about, boom, all of creation, all the universe bursts into this awesome, uh, loud proclamation of worthy is the Lamb who was slain forever and ever and ever in God's purchase of us out of humanity and all the great that came out of this decisive moment in history. Now, what John sees in chapter 5, verse 6, is a lamb. And the word there in Greek, I mentioned it last week, is the word for a little lamb. It wasn't a sheep. It wasn't a big sheep. It was literally a little lamb. And he sees Jesus in this it's, it's, it's a shock. No one expected God to come like that at this decisive moment in history as a little lamb. Now, throughout history, Israel would sacrifice perfect, unblemished lambs on an altar as, uh, for, for, as a substitute for their sins. They deserve to die. And all through history, the Jewish people would sacrifice lambs on an altar, and their blood would be shed. So they would be their substitute. So they could come approach God, and that lamb would pay for their sins. And so Jesus is pictured here as a lamb, as the perfect Passover sacrifice who accomplished a victory through death. Now, I don't know about you, my neighbor uh, two days ago offered us a lamb. He went to the Bronx, and every year he does this, and he buys a lamb, like a lamb lamb, like legs and everything, <laughs> all right? And he chops it up in three pieces for us and two of our neighbors, and we got the back part this year. And the two legs standing there. And I didn't even want to go over to the house, all right? And, uh, but, you know, I, I said to Jerry, was it frozen? She goes, no, it was not frozen. And uh, we graciously declined. I just imagine bringing it into my kids, you know, and here comes the lamb. But, uh, you know, we're not used to seeing butchered meat. I mean, we just, we go to, we have a butcher do it, and we get it all nicely packaged in the supermarket. But, uh, Jesus coming as a lamb, it says here, was slain, and the word there is for slaughtered. His throat had been cut. It was not a pretty picture. It's a bloody, slaughtered lamb on the throne. And that's why John the Baptist was so confused. I mean, when John the Baptist was in prison, he was very offended. Are you sure you're the Messiah? Are you sure this is your God coming to save us? And uh, because John's in prison about to have his head cut off. 
And he's wondering, maybe this, maybe, I, maybe this isn't the one. And the Bible says he was offended by this lamb, the way that he was doing this, the way this decisive moment in history was working out. And, uh, you know, I, I like, we like a lion. In fact, Jesus is referred to as a lion in verse 5, and it's one of the titles for the Messiah, but that's not the way he came the first time, primarily came as a lamb. The, la- the lion's the way he's going to come at the end of history. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He will roar and, and destroy all evil. But he first comes as a lamb, and, and uh, you know, lions, I mean, I, I like, I, I want to follow a lion, don't you? I mean, following a lamb, I don't know. But a lion's the man respect. Kill people, people afraid of them roar a bit. I mean, lambs. And, uh, and so on the earth, you don't see, you know, in the United States, a symbol of, our, our symbol is an eagle, something that will, that will a, a ravenous beast, you know, and, and mighty beasts and birds of prey are what nations choose as their symbol. You know, Russia's got the bear, and France has the tiger. England has the lion. They took the lion and stole it from us. You know, we got the eagle. I don't know about you, but I, I saw for the first time last week my first Humvee on a narrow street in Queens. I was blown away. Have you seen those cars? I, I'd seen pictures. They're tanks. They are, they are tanks. And I like, I mean, that's the way we want Jesus to come, like as a tank, as a Humvee. And uh, because our society, we measure strength and power in terms of physical beauty and, and intellect and wealth, material possessions and and, uh, you know, fame and brilliance and our house, how much of a celebrity are, we are. But the symbol of the kingdom of God and Jesus' incarnation and Christmas is a lamb. That's why this verse in verse 6, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. That is what, what releases the rest of the book. It's not the lion that releases the rest of the book. It is the lamb who has been slain that John sees that is a symbol of the kingdom of God, the slaughtered lamb that, re- that releases all of heaven and earth. Screaming, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and praise. And then all the judgments and all the rest of the lines being worked out and history coming to a climax. It is through a lamb on a throne. It's very important. So we get Christmas straight. Because the question is, what does it mean for us to follow a slaughtered lamb? And what I want to suggest to you today, it's a lot different than we thought. Just like it was for John the Baptist. Now remember, Jesus came to earth to a little town in Bethlehem with about 100 to 300 people in it. I mean... How many of you come from small towns here? You know, that's a small town. And, uh, you know, in a, in a manger, smelly, dark cave. Remember last year, it was probably a cave. And uh, uh, it was very dark. And here's the Messiah, so small, so weak. The eternal word of God, through whom the universe was created, becomes a small human baby. Uh, he's still God, but a human baby. Completely dependent on uh, human beings for survival. And we have seen his glory, John writes in John chapter 1. We beheld his glory in the flesh, God. And it's something, this is incomprehensible, it's unfathomable, it's, it's staggering. We are meant to pause and ponder God entering human history, incarnation, in a human being form, as a baby, and choosing to come in that little oppressed people's village called Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph, the almighty God of the universe who, who did not come as an angel, invincible, did not come as a warrior or a king or a president, didn't come as a movie star or as an Olympian, but I like what Max Lucado says. He says he was born an oppressed Jew. 
He appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie there, wiggle, make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other human baby. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, 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 so small as to become a single fertilized egg. An egg that would enlarge into a fetus and then into a nervous teenager. The God who roared, who could make galaxies move around the universe with a word, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food. The God who knows no time or space entered time. He entered space. He, he the eternal one, entered our time. Fragile, unknown, obscure, helpless, dependent. Now, the more you think about it, and you have to think about it, so it's very tough to be busy at Christmas, because the more you think about it, the more staggering it is. And we are the people that are to hold this up to the world around us of Christmas. This is what we're celebrating. This is his celebration. This incredible moment. No one ever expected God to come as a lamb. To be born of a teenager who wasn't even married yet, subject to her to stoning. No one expected him to be born as a fourth-class citizen, shut out of an inn. No one ever imagined that he would come from the most backward province culturally in Palestine, Nazareth and Galilee. No one ever dreamed he'd become a refugee in Africa, running for his life, and that when he first went to the temple at eight days old, only two people would actually recognize him. Everyone else has ignored him. But God arranges circumstances in such a way that when he visits our planet, that he's born without earthly power, without earthly prestige, without really receiving justice or wealth. But in dying, he was victorious. The lamb that was slain, it was in death and coming as a lamb that he is victorious. Now, do you understand that out of this dying is released? Just go with me for a moment. It's that you'll notice in verse 9, it says, By your blood, through your death, through you being slain, you purchase men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, work together here as a reconciled people. That is really not God's ultimate goal. God's ultimate goal is to bring us together from different tribes and languages and cultures and nations and races to form us into a family. But his goal is to do that and then that we might worship him together. That's his goal is that we would be worshipers of him. Reconciliation is simply a piece to get there. And then it's a countless, without ability to count numbers of angels in heaven, crying out, verse 12, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so we've got this turbulence. We have a beast. And the context in the New Testament, is, in the book of Revelation in particular, is that we are in the middle of living in turbulence over here. After the incarnation, there is still a rocky road. And we find ourselves in the middle of spiritual warfare. And so you'll notice, Michael, next, next um, put the verses up. And so you've got this picture now that the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And the Bible lays out a picture that we are involved in a, in a colossal cosmic warfare spiritually. 
with powers and principalities of the air. Next one. And that the devil was enraged at the woman, enraged at the incarnation. That's the context there. And went off to make war against her offspring. And if you're a believer here today, the devil has come to make war against you. To shut you down in your walk with God. To silence you. To crush you. To get you away from walking and abiding in relationship with Jesus. And to consume you. And to swallow you. And will use anything and everything to wreck you and cut you off from Jesus. And cut you off from his people. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. To get you off of obeying God's commandments. And off of bearing witness to Jesus. Now. One of the great themes is that we play a part in bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. Let me try to explain this very briefly. We are called to follow the slaughtered lamb. And we too are called to die. And in choosing the path of the lamb and to die, we are an indispensable piece of God bringing the kingdom and the power of what Jesus has done on the cross and resurrection to earth. We are critical for God moving in history, and he does it through his people who choose to follow a slaughtered lamb who dies. And so our faithful discipleship is key. What's very interesting in the book of Revelation, we'll get to later, is that what brings the nations to conversion is not God's judgments. What brings the nations to conversions is God's people choosing to die. It's choosing to follow the Lamb and die for their faith in Jesus is what brings the harvest in. Very interesting thought, isn't it? I know, what a Christmas message. All right, now, now how would you like to become a Christian today? We would like to invite you to receive the free gift of salvation. It is so free. But the truth is, you are invited to follow the slaughtered Lamb, and it will cost you your whole life. That is the truth. Now, would you like to become a Christian today? So he says, John says, come out of her, my people. The Lord says, come out of the beast, my people, and follow the slaughtered lamb. So what I want to do today is just simply ask ourselves the question and make a few applications. What does it mean for us in 2003, 2003, how do we follow the slaughtered lamb of God? What does it mean to really be a Christian today? To follow the lamb who was slain. And I, I realize I had many, many, many things, but I broke it down to four. Because we are not victorious in this life if we make enough money. I'll be victorious if I could just make enough money. Or I'll be victorious and conquer in life if I can just get enough education in me. Or enough material security for my future. Or if I can just get my green card and my U.S. citizenship, I can be victorious. And think about what we dream for our children. I want my children to be victorious, right? That's the theme of, of Revelation, to be a conqueror, to be victorious. And I think, when I think of my children being victorious, I am not thinking, I'll be honest, I'm not thinking of them following a slaughtered lamb. But that is the way to victory in the book of Revelation, is to die. So, Michael, let's put it up here. And uh, because the theme is, by dying, Jesus was victorious. And then next, by dying, here's our theme. No, 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 go back. Go back. Oh, yeah, okay, that's good. I'm sorry, Michael, you put that up. By dying... We are victorious. That is our theme. That's the theme of Christmas. We're following a slaughtered lamb. And it's through dying that we are victorious. So the question now is what does look, that look like? And I'm going to give you just 
really four or five things. But hear this. Unless you have heaven's perspective, you will not follow the slaughtered lamb. That's why we spent the last few weeks on seeing the throne room of God, getting God's perspective on the human race, so that, on, on history. So why? So that, they will, so that God's people will make the right choices in the midst of the beast and the turbulence of history. And so here's number one. Dying, next one, Michael. Dying, by dying we are victorious in life. One. Our first theme, I think it's a great theme of Revelation, we die by bearing witness to what is true. And that's all through the Revelation, throughout the book, and you've heard a bit from it already. The word witness, the word give testimony is all throughout the book of Revelation. And it means to give a verbal witness to what is true, Jesus, backed by your life. You're not living a hypocritical life. And by that, you're exposing falsehood and idolatry and lies in the culture. And the great verse is, you know, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their wives' lives so much, even unto the death. Now, Christmas, you've got to hear this. Christmas, I mean, it is, I went shopping this week. It is busy out there. But this is his holiday. This is his. This is a celebration of that decisive moment in human history, the most decisive moment in human history. Now, you know our culture, it's less and less of Christmas. It's a holiday. It's less and less of anything to do with God or Christ. It's about a holiday that our culture has that we need very much for our economy. But we are called to stop and to bear witness the fact that, no, this is about the most decisive event in human history. The entrance of God into the planet. And we bear witness to what is true. And that all the signposts that we're involved in are pointing to him. Why do we exchange gifts? Because of the ultimate gift that was given to us. We're enjoying a family meal. Hopefully you'll be with some friends on Wednesday. But that feast points to the great feast that we are looking forward to. And our families that we're together and we have some friends. And, but that points to the great time we'll be in heaven with our real family forever and ever and ever. And every song we sing, we will someday sing the song of songs and forever and ever and ever. And so we, don't, we, we have a reality check that we don't expect too much from Christmas. Because it's only a pointer and a signpost to what we really long for, which is him. And so we bear witness to the truth because many folks are so disappointed about Christmas. Because we live in all this turbulence. We are not in heaven. And we are the ones to bear witness in the pain of life that we are looking forward to seeing him face to face. And so when, when someone says some things in a room, which I'm sure will happen to you, has happened to Jerry and I last past week, that we totally disagree with. And you're sitting there, and we often shut our mouths because we don't want to make waves. And, or someone may make a racist remark in your presence or a condescending remark about someone or a slur. And, you know, you're saying to yourself, yeah, but I witnessed without my words. Right. A silent witness. We respect people making choices for their lives, and we don't want to impose anything on folks. But the issue for most of us is we're dying. We're so afraid of not having people's approval. And we, we die by bearing witness to what is true, and we die to people's approval. And we speak the truth. I mean, the Iraq war, even another great example for me. Now, I'm not making a comment about this whole war, but I do know this. When, when people are talking about murdering and slaughtering human beings made in the image of God with a glee and joy in their face, we must speak. And so those are men and women and children and families, just like you and I, made in the image of God. And we don't demonize anybody. And war is a great tragedy no matter how you cut it. 
and that we speak up in the midst of things because we belong to a nation and a culture and a people that transcends our culture and nation. We belong to the people of God and the nation of God. And we must always bear witness to what is true. And so we never get too caught up in, I'm, 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 I love my country with all of its weaknesses and flaws, but we never get too patriotic because my first country is heaven. And national boundaries come and go. But if we will bear witness to what is true, and there may be a price sometimes for that, and I, some of you know you can even lose a promotion, but it brings life. Because you're free. And you're not living a life that was never yours to be lived. You're living your life in God. And that in dying it brings resurrection. All right. Number two. And that's why, you, bearing witness, I, I want to invite people Tuesday night. Because I want to bear witness to the fact of, this Christmas, I know you're swamped and overwhelmed, but it's about worship of Jesus. And you may not even be a believer, but I say, you know what? You're too busy, but this is what it's all about. And I want to encourage you to come. All right. The second is, we die by fighting for what is right. Because fighting for what is right costs. And let me give you a little example. A friend of mine, with whom I was with recently, got married about 20, 25 years ago, and... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, he recently had this dramatic event happen to him, and he, he conversion really again with God and meeting with God. And he called me to get together. But his wife, over the years, grew uh, more and more emotionally unavailable due to I would just call it mental challenges. And her family growing up had been a disaster. And so her ability to mother the children and be a wife to him was minimal. And so both believers. But she really wasn't willing to work on her piece of the package, get some help. And he realized at one point on a business trip in Europe that their marriage was, was dissolving. And that she had very little to bring to him into the relationship. And then basically God visited him you know, in, in a variety of ways, you know, spoke to him. And he met with me so full of life and joy. And I'm like, what happened to you? And he goes, God told me to fight for our marriage. And that I was to pursue her and give her all the love she never received in her very abusive background. So he's pulled out his day timer. He goes, I've been doing this now for almost six months. Pulls out his day timers. You know, you have a to-do list, A1, 2, 3. So A, his top of to-do list, A1 in yellow, was, you know, buy her flowers. And he says, I, I leave my bag in the car when I walk in the house, and I'm just totally present. She may be in the, in, in, the, in the living room floor, wrapped up, kind of crying in tears by herself. I'll just come over and just wrap her and hold her in my arms and just tell her how beautifully she is and how much I love her. And I buy her flowers. I'm buying her gifts. We're going on dates. He says, my kids are like, what happened to you? giving her big sloppy kisses, you know. And, but he says, not only is God changing me, he goes, I'm a different person. Because God said to me, I've given you everything you need to do this. I've given you the power, and the, my life is inside of you to love her. And he says, you know what? Once I began to obey, it was there. Because I don't even know where it came from. And he goes, it's been six months. And he says, and the incredible thing is, she's changing. He goes, she's changing. And he goes, but I'm fighting for what's true and right. And I'm praying over her. She's not even asking for it. I'm praying over with her in any way. I'm reading the word over her, and I'm loving her to death. 
And she's so overwhelmed because no one's ever loved her. All she's been her whole life is abused. And I just contributed to it the first 18 years of our marriage, 20 years of our marriage. And, uh, but he said, the Lord said to me, you have it in you to be kind. I'm in you. You have it in you to be generous. You have it in you to be loving. And now he says, my workplace has been changed. He's got 120 employees under him. He goes, you can't believe it, Pete. The workplace has changed. He says, my kids are changing. But you know what? I am fighting, but it has been a death. It's not easy to love when you're not getting much back. It is a death. Now, you might, for you, it might be in a friendship. It might be in parenting. I don't know what it is for you. But it is a death to fight for what is right. And not say, you know what? I give up. My Forget I give up. I quit. I can't be bothered anymore. It's too difficult and too complex. But to follow the slaughtered lamb is to die for the kingdom of God to come. And it does cost. Let's not kid ourselves. To have great marriages, to have great families, to have great friendships, to have a great church, to have the kingdom of God flow through us. It takes us following a slaughtered lamb, and we experience victory, but we must die first. He who loses his life, says Jesus, will find it. But he who holds on to his life and refuses to die, Jesus says, you will lose your life. But that's the great counterintuitiveness of the Christmas story. We're inviting people to die because we want them to live. But you've got to die first. And we're following a slaughtered lamb. That's who we are following. It is not a tiger. Now, all right, next one. All right. Number three. Related to fighting for what is right is dying by waiting. I don't know about you, but if anything that kills me, it's waiting. Waiting for God. Waiting for a relationship, if you're single with Mr. and Mrs. Wright. Waiting for a dream you've had to become a reality. Waiting for God to answer that unanswered prayer. Waiting for some healing from a betrayal or a disappointment. Waiting for a healing for your life. I think of myself waiting for the Elks four years. But I want you to hear this. God always acts at the right time. God always. I know you're saying, no, no, sometime. No, he always, always acts and moves at the right time. But this waiting is about a death to you controlling life and history. I want to control that turbulent line, and I want to bring it to an end. And God says, no, I'm on the throne. You are the creature. You are my servant, and you are to die to running your world and universe. And waiting is a death. And God loves you so much, he gives you opportunity to die. Now, you can be angry and bitter and yell and scream. You can blame everybody you want. And not choose to die. But you'll lose your life. But if you will die and lose your life in waiting for God. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, this is bloody to wait on God. Think of Abraham waiting 25 years. How about the Israelites waiting 400 years? It says in Exodus, they groaned in their slavery for God to move. And 400 years? That's the year what? That's 1602. Now that's, leave me. None of us are waiting that long. 
But we're in a culture where we finish people's sentences. You know, we drive like maniacs. And we kick the wall when there's a long line when we're shopping, all right? And God is saying, you're to die and learn to wait. But that's what it means to follow the slaughtered lamb. And you know what we learn about? You know what gets resurrected? You know what we find out about when we wait on God? That God's good. Because the thing when you're waiting is you think God's not good. Nah, he's no good. If he was good, he wouldn't make me wait. But you find out when you wait that God is good. And he's the God of the impossible. And old things had to end so new things could be birthed. And he could see it all, but he knew that there had to be a time frame where you would die to some things of the past so we could birth some things that are new. And so it's a gift. And again, we lose our lives by dying and we gain them a resurrection. All right, let me close with this. Last one. We die by choosing brokenness and vulnerability. Now, put the, put the chart up, Michael. Is this one by one, too? Okay. Now, we have tigers and bears, and we have broken lambs. Now, you can have a choice what you're going to do. But it is a choice to choose to die. Now, this is my little list. A tiger bear are guarded and protective. Many of us are walking around. We're guarded because we've been hurt. All of us here have been hurt. We've all been hurt in life. And it, the older you are, the more hurts you've got in your pocket. And the longer you've been a believer, the more you've experienced hurts and betrayals. It's just part of you being conformed to the image of Jesus. There is no substitute for that. If he walked that path, so shall you. So Judas has come to all of our paths. And, and so, but so many of us, so we're, we're, we've been so wounded, we're so guarded and protective, we are like tigers and bears. People know, watch out. Here she comes. Because we're not choosing the path of the lamb to die, which is to be transparent and weak. Next one is, tigers and bears, you offend a tiger or a bear, they will eat you up. A broken lambs are approachable and open. They're not so touchy. But it's a death to be approachable and open when you've been beaten your whole life. I'm not saying, I'm not, we're not saying it'd be a doormat, but we are saying that there is a path of a lamb of death. The third is, I, I, just, I have five, you know, the focus, tigers and bears are, always see the flaws of everybody else. They're great at discerning, and they eat people up as a result. Broken lambs are not so focused on everyone else being so screwed up. They focus on their own flaws, oh, God, change me and transform me. It's a path of death. Tigers and bears give their opinions a lot. They got a lot of opinions about the way things should go. Broken lambs are just, they're very quick to listen. Very loving. And finally, tigers and bears hold grudges. Rarely says, I guess I left the line out, forgive me. But tigers and bears, hold, they, they, they want to hold the power. They don't want to die. Forgiving, letting go and forgiving is a death. It's a death. Now, I just want to ask you, it's tough to be broken and live in New York City. It's very tough. It, we fight to be first in line. I fight to get on the highway, you know, to get, to get in there. I fight on the subway train. They cram in. I fight as a parent, the culture. We fight with working with people we can't stand. We fight when nobody says thank you. You know, some of us were like, oh, they didn't even send me a Christmas card this year, you know. But you understand, going back, Michael, going back to the last one, is that, that there's a call of, of dying, which is vulnerability and brokenness. 
and that the victory is, there's nothing left to prove to anybody. I'm loved by God. I can be myself. But there, it's a death. And in that death, there is a life. But it is a death. And Jesus uh, conquered by dying. And you are going to conquer. Can you go back? Go to the next one, maybe? There we go. Thank you. And by choosing brokenness and vulnerability, which I'm telling you, it is a death to do that consistently as a lifestyle. It brings life. With God, life with people, people uh, you're loving, Jesus flowing through you. And again, you look at Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. Out of him choosing to die, and all this glory came. When you choose to die, life will follow. Everywhere you go, it is a promise. So my question to you is, okay, Jesus conquered by dying. He became a fugitive. In fact, him coming to earth was the first death, but was a series of death culminating in an ultimate death. Becoming a Christian is a death, but then there's a whole series of deaths in your life. And there's some really big ones along the way. So I want the worship team to come on forward. I want you to reflect on this question. What does it mean for you to choose death this week? Right where you are in your life, what does it mean for you to choose death? Now, I've written four things. I had five or six others. I'm not even going to go down that road. But... What might it mean for you to choose death this week that there might be an abundant life flowing through you? Remember, Jesus came that you might have life in abundance. It was interesting, my friend who I mentioned earlier, who's loving his wife and fighting for his wife, said to me, Pete, I finally looked around the church before this crisis broke, and I said, where is the joy in the abundant life? And he says, I realize because nobody wants to die. Because the path to abundant joy and life is the opposite of the world. It is choosing to die. And I'll add to that. It is following the slaughtered lamb of God. Not a tiger and not a bear, but a slaughtered lamb. And we're inviting everybody to die so that they might live and really have life. So close your eyes for a moment. And before God, ask yourself, Lord, what does it mean for me to choose death this week? That there might be an abundant life. What does it mean, Lord, for me to come down off of my throne and humble myself this week? to follow you, Jesus, this Christmas. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I can't do it. I don't have it. I don't know even what to do. God wants you to know that everything you need to do his will you have. All the power, all the love, all the kindness, all the humility. 
he's inside of you can do it. But as Jesus